Welcome to the Harper's Podcast. I'm your host, Violet Luca. In the April issue, Nat Segnet reviews Paul Fisher's The Man Who Invented Motion Pictures, a true tale of obsession, murder, and the movies. Fisher's book traces the life and work of Louis Le Prince, an artist and inventor who was first to perfect the technology behind the seventh art, and who mysteriously disappeared on his way to the first public demonstration of his creation. While time has washed away any hard evidence of foul play, Thomas Edison's kinetoscope, the patent for which was announced eight months after Le Prince was last seen alive, bore a striking resemblance to Le Prince's camera. It's important to understand that Edison's monopolistic command of film technology, as well as early films, has indelibly shaped the medium from its outset. After all, the group of producers who founded Hollywood were attempting to escape the Wizard of Menlo Park's draconian copyright laws. I spoke with Segnet about Leprance's far more idealistic vision of cinema, what that unrealized dream might have led film to be, and the ontological and phenomenological essence of film. So, at one point in your review, you write, quote, one of the pleasures and sadnesses of Fisher's account is its evocation of a period, however brief, when the emergence of a technology seemed to herald a new age of human interconnectedness, end quote. And th- this issue of the relationship between film technology and interconnectedness comes up a few times. And in the book, does Fisher address this question or is this an interest that you're bringing to the story? Because I know you've written about solitude for your book retreat. Yes. Okay. Well, b- before I answer your question, I just wanted to say two things. One, thank you very much, Violet, for inviting me onto the podcast. It's a great pleasure because the Le Prince story is so compelling. It's just great to get the opportunity to talk about it. And two, I should mention that I'm suffering from my first non, non-COVID, non I hope, post-COVID cold, and it's a humdinger. So I apologize ah. if I sound like an ad for Kleenex. <laughs> Or, or, or whatever, but to ad- to address your question, yeah, tech and interconnectedness. He, he uh, Paul Fisher addresses it to an extent. He does make an interesting distinction between Le Prince and his rivals in the field of early motion picture technology, as that applies to the question of interconnectedness. So you know, these are all guys born in the eighteen thirties and, and eighteen forties. Edward Muybridge, for instance, is this solitary English eccentric working in California uh, and a murderer indeed having shot his wife's lover and been acquitted on the grounds of justified homicide yes <laughs> yeah who's so his instantaneous photographs of running horses and naked human figures and so forth are hugely influential both on the understanding of the mechanics of movement and on art you know Fisher draws an interesting parallel with with the work the cubists and the futurists would do later on to break and reassemble perspective and this is kind of similar to what Muybridge was doing earlier in the 1870s. Then there's a French physiologist by the name of Etienne Jules Marais, who's doing, I guess, what you call roughly comparable work to to Muybridge, although to more specifically scientific ends. So he's presenting his, what Fisher terms, the photographic dissection of birds in flight to the Académie des Sciences in, in Paris. Then there's Thomas Edison, who, who, as we know, is an entrepreneur. He's in it for the money. He makes products. But Fisher makes an, a pretty convincing case, I think, that Le Prince was different. And this is, this is how the story tells on this question of interconnectedness. So for his rivals, motion pictures are a means to an end. But for Le Prince, they're an end in themselves. So 
For instance, he tells his son Adolf that he plans to make fictional movies. He sees the educational potential in the new technology. So during their time in New York, Le Prince's wife Lizzie worked as an art teacher at the Institute for the Deaf, uh, which was then in, in Upper Manhattan. And Le Prince had a workshop there in a back room, and he discussed with the teachers there the possibility of using this new visual technology he was developing as, as a teaching aid for the deaf. So it, it does seem on the basis of the evidence that we have that he was a he was a you know an appealingly idealistic character. That there's and there's a great quote from Lizzie's correspondence that really captures that, I think. She remembers Louis fully expecting that film would put an end to the divine right of kings and much needless priestcraft. So, you know, he's both a rationalist and a visionary artist and a natural democrat, it seems. It really does seem as if he's more interested in the social and expressive potential of film than in its commercial exploitation. You know, he's drawn up plans for a space we would understand today as a screening room, which he refers to as a people's theatre. So I think there are glimmers there of what, in some senses, cinema would become, you know, of its impact as an inherently communal medium. And I guess that is, that is a, a specific interest of mine that I'm bringing to the piece. And David Thompson writes absolutely brilliantly on this in the in the whole equation. I don't know if you know that book, but um, well, if you haven't read it, I thoroughly recommend it. It's this sort of incomparable history of Hollywood, both as this hellhole of greed and exploitation and monopolistic and cartel-like business practices and corruption and outright fraud and murder, and as the great crucible of a medium whose commonality was crucial to its beauty. So, you know, we think about the heyday of cinema, the real heyday before TV takes off in the 50s. You sit in a big room with maybe a hundred, a couple of hundred people, and of course some people might have nodded off or are thinking about their shopping or focusing on their popcorn or filing their nails but so there may be varying degrees of resistance to the shared experience but crucially the movie keeps moving it ticks over in Thompson's words you know whether or not everyone is paying full attention they are bathed in the same light from the screen and as an audience member you can't pause the film or rewind or fast forward or, or click away the film carries on regardless the natural corollary of of which is that we are obliged, in a sense, to have that communal experience. We are brought together, you know, more or less in the same way as audiences had been for for millennia by theatre and music and religious ritual. But, but the difference being that this shared experience, in the case of a widely distributed movie, is that it's being shared across the country and indeed the world. And I guess you need to factor in the size of the screen, the size of the image, these 30-foot flawless faces of Douglas Fairbanks and Greta Garbo and whomever they are gods which on top of our inability to to pause or click away or whatever renders us that much more helpless our agency is being removed in a good way we are de-individuated and the social effect of that was enormous as we know you know the movie house becomes this engine of community cohesion where you went with your family and your friends and your neighbours and you courted, you held hands with your date for the evening. And in my view, in David Thompson's view, this is inseparable from the art of the medium. And I guess why the way we tend to consume movies nowadays does represent a loss in some respects, the loss of that that communal swoon. Absolutely. And I think there are a lot of cinephiles who argue 
for the value of theaters, even in these times when, you know, COVID and actually considering that if if everyone is wearing a mask and everyone is facing forward toward the screen and no one is talking, it's actually pretty safe to go to a movie uh-huh. theater. It's probably way more yeah. safe than going to a restaurant. And yet, you know, there's there's this real hesitance to kind of encourage people to go back out by the industry itself to, to participate right. in this communal shared experience. And I mean, I think everyone who's listened and has gone to the film, has gone to a movie theater and come out of a film and feeling that shared experience, like you can't help but feel, you know, if you've seen something very emotional or, or just sort of provocative or interesting or engrossing, you do feel like you've shared something with other people and you don't even have to say that. It's just a fact. It's just a fact of the experience. And it makes it totally, I don't know. It's sad that it's going away. It's very sad that it's going away. It's it's so sad, and it's it's so tough for the for 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 the you know the, the cinema companies. I, I, the first movie I went to see post lockdown was The Many Saints of Newark. You know David Chase's prequel to The Sopranos, um, and I know that you know that didn't do very well uh, at the box office, but there's been a huge smash smash hit on on streaming platforms. But my local cinema up the up the road here in London, which is you know pre pandemic was kind of gallingly expensive to go to was begging us to go i mean i think you know we got our, i went with a friend we got our tickets for four or five pounds or something which is just nothing and indeed we pretty much had the screening room on a thursday evening you know when norm- when in the olden days that would have been pretty full pretty much to ourselves so i mean i don't know the figures on how things are picking up but uh yeah it certainly didn't look good then at all yeah no it's a, yeah yeah but I mean, you know, sort of going against this idea of interconnectedness, because there is an implication that film did not lead to greater human connection and, you know, have moving pictures, to put it broadly, but on the whole more isolating or more connecting, because it sounds as if in, the, in your mind, the answer has changed through different periods in the medium's history. And it's not just specifically like the advent of television. It's, it's, it's other sort of technological advances. Yeah. Yes, I think it has changed over the years. I mean, I, I mentioned in the magazine piece that, uh, you know, before Edison's alleged theft of Le Prince's idea for um, a motion picture machine, his and W.K.L. Dixon's kinetoscope was really going all out on the individuated experience. You know, it's a peephole device. You bend over this machine with a little peephole and crank it yourself. It's to be used by one person who can indeed pause the moving image and rewind it by cranking it backwards. And so, you know, you might conceive of Edison and and Dixon being on the wrong side of history at that point. They're backing the wrong horse, as it were. Actually, David Thompson wonders if the kinetoscope wasn't modelled more closely on the reading experience in that it does rely on individual concentration and is kind of amenable to the rate of consumption being controlled by by that individual. Well, it also resembles, you know, precursor to cinematic technology, which is the peep show. Ah, well, and there was also, yeah. you know, like things like the magic lantern and things like that. But again, like the the notion that you're just sort of like honed in and isolated. Yes, it is. It, you're right. They were not... <laughs> 
<laughs> they were not on the right side of history. <laughs> well, well, no, but then, of course, what happens with the invention of TV and then the invention of VHS and later streaming devices and smartphones and so forth is that we do revert to the individuated experience. You know, perhaps Edison was right. Perhaps he was on the right side of history, looking further into the future, kind of vaulting over that brief and in you know my sentimental view, golden period of, in the first half of the 20th century, when film was inevitably communal, to the post-war phenomenon of sitting at home watching Gone with the Wind uh, with your supper on your lap on a, you know on a little box, and then you know later with the advent of video recorders being able to determine the pace of consumption, you know, so the individual's agency is restored, but at the loss of that communal experience, we're, we're in control and alone. Right. You know, it is interesting to chart how removing that interconnectedness, that shared experience, tracks with cinema's decline as the popular art. Because, like you say, for most of the 20th, 20th century, it was the definitive, like, popular art. And again, we're recording this before the Oscars. Who do you think is going to win? Nobody cares. No, yeah. Like, nobody has seen these movies. And they're just not part of the cultural discussion in a way that film was, you know, even 15 years ago. That, you know, there's been this, as, as things have gone more personal, and obviously, of course, there are more ways to divide our attention, video games, the internet, uh, conspiracy theories, what have you, film means less than it once did to most people. However, there are like holdouts like me who's like, yeah, I still love movies and there's nothing like seeing a good movie. That's right. But I, I think that's partly in due, to, due due to a kind of craven capitulation to the dynamics of TV and of, and of the box set on cinema's part. So, you know, where in the golden age of, 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 of film, we can rely on the Aristotelian unity of a single story, a single narrative taking place over 90 minutes or two hours um, or whatever. We now get these endless franchises. I mean, I just remember, actually, I mentioned going to see the, the um, Many Saints of Newark and there was a trailer for the new Bond film, which I hadn't seen at that point, just before it. I'm just terrified of looking like a single self-contained story. It had to place itself <laughs> in this interminable Vesper Lind saga. In other words, completely abandoning that sense of unity, that sense of completeness, a story told and finished in two hours in favour of the soapy open-endedness of most, most TV. And meanwhile, geniuses like David Chase are actually managing to impose some unity over 86 hours in... Uh, I mean, I, I think that's a The Sopranos is a very, very rare example of that. But still, you can see how the how how that that capitulation represents such a loss uh, of confidence on the cultural level in film. Well, it also, of course, uh, to to take a socialist view of the the Hollywood system, which is, of course, uh, the Hollywood system being. Uh, Baldly capitalist, Fordian, and uh, focused on producing a product, yeah, a consistent product. It also has so much to do with money because, of course, having a film that's ninety minutes that is a discrete event that is not, let's say, to use to use the worst word that I hear all the time, if it is not world building, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> if we're not world building, if we're not yeah. participating in a franchise, then. If you have just a, a single film, you're you're missing out on future profits because there there's been such an interest in 
over the past. I mean, even like based on a true story movies, the amount of, yeah. like, bizarre, you know, sort of like picked from history, Hollywood and a lot of popular, you know, popular cinemas is focused on established intellectual property. Because yeah. again, film is not the popular art form it used to be. And so to sort of entice people in, it's like, well, okay, uh, if you read these books by Stephanie Meyer, maybe you'll like, you know, we can get you, we can hook you in, we can kind of create this, we can build out this world that actually doesn't feel very real at all, but you keep you coming back. And that's so sad because it should just... It's so sad. We need to, we need to build our universe. I mean, I got a terrible chill down the spine at the end of the Bond film, who's ending i you know i won't reveal for the three or four people who haven't seen it but i i got this vision of <laughs> i think it's oh my more God. than that <laughs> okay okay it's okay, well good <laughs> i got this vision of young bond you know and then Mathilde bond the daughter perhaps even taking over uh you know another a, a corner of this universe i mean it is yeah it is mm-hmm. what you know what a what a falling off is there oh my goodness let's just end this now i'm so depressed yeah <laughs> because it's like a lack of faith in itself like many institutions it seems like yeah precisely what has sort of lost faith in itself to be able to create individuated single things consistently that are good as opposed to just sort of like well okay so we have like 50 marvel movies planned out for the next 20 years and we know we're gonna make back what we put into it and more and it's 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 like I don't know. Have a little self-respect. Come on. <laughs> exactly. But you know that, and that was a, that was a fear I got watching watching the Many Saints of Newark too, because to the extent that it is a self-contained story, the story of Dicky Moltisanti, I thought it was very successful. But the kind of young, you know, Tony, the Soprano crew in their youth did point towards. And I know David Chase has talked about doing an, um, another, uh, you know, a second movie about Tony's rise through the nineteen eighties. It, you know, it did sound like the first signs of a ever expanding Sopranos universe, which I think, you know, mitigates against everything that made the, you know, that work of art so successful. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. Because again, what was so great about the Sopranos was that it refused so many lazy, easy things about television. And then, of course, when yeah. it gets to yeah. the movies, it's just like, here, I'm just going to give in to the worst. But I, I guess I don't know if there's money in it. Uh, so, it's so ironic, that isn't it? I mean, so so it it stole the cultural high ground from movies, but now is following the the worst instincts of movies of the movies that have followed. Anyway, so yes, so that's that. Um, uh, the question of internet and smartphone use. You're right in in my book Retreat, which is for the three or four people that haven't read it, a study of um, uh, the, I am kidding about that, the study of the human impulse to step back from society for good or ill. And I do look, as many people have done, on the kind of isolating effects of internet and smartphone use. And in particular, this is slightly off the subject, but in particular, the sharp irony that in meditation apps, people are kind of attempting to achieve clarity of mind and a sense of connectedness via the world's most notorious mental pollutant and key contributor to the opposite of connectedness. And so it's a whole other subject. But, but I would say in the context of the Le Prince story and how his work, did, his vision, did look forward to that golden age of cinema where we all sat in big rooms enjoying the same experience, the advent of the smartphone with the tiny screen designed for one, you know, the earbuds, and noise-cancelling earphones that separate you from your audible environment. 
And of course, the temptation to pause and click away and check on IMDb what other movies Anya Taylor-Joy has been in. We have hit a nadir of com- uh, of communality, which is another reason why Le Prince's idealism actually strikes such a powerfully poignant note, I think. Yes. And I mean, could you walk us through some of the reasons the importance of film would have been a non obvious insight in Leprance's time because you know there's 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 there are all these inventors sort of you know coming together but also working on the same thing but also not necessarily seeing beyond the creation of it in the way that Leprance did well I mean again in the piece I draw the parallel with that great scene in David Finch's The Social Network where you remember Justin Timberlake as Sean Parker is digging into some very expensive looking sushi with Mark Zuckerberg and Eduardo Sabarin and Christy Lee and he and he's giving them his tuppenny worth on Facebook so, and this is 2004 so it's only been around for a year and Parker says excuse me you don't even know what it is yet so cinema is very much like this in the late 19th century it's kind of yet to coalesce into itself you have all these competing and convergent technologies Muybridge and Marais working on this instantaneous photography Edison and Dixon on the kinetograph and kinetoscope Le Prince on his device the English inventor William Freeze Green who is experimenting with a number of different moving picture devices in the late 1880s and early 1890s and then there's George Eastman humble photographic supply salesman from Rochester New York and the paper film he invents subsequently improved upon when the English inventor John Carbot applies photographic emulsion to the recently invented plastic known known as celluloid so you know the strong impression is of these is of a bunch of really quite disparate brainy people working concurrently without quite knowing what it all amounted to this sort of unwitting team effort uh, I mean, as I say, again, in the piece, the cinema is one of the great counterexamples to the heroic theory of in- invention, the idea that the, that the great innovations are the work of single geniuses subject to kind of eureka moments alone in their laboratory. On the contrary, it's a great example of multiple discovery, like natural selection or the prime number theorem. But as per Sean Parker on Facebook, it takes a while for anyone to realise what they're dealing with. So famously, Edison really didn't rate the kinetoscope. His big thing at the time was a very boring sounding magnetic ore separator, which he reckoned would massively increase profits in the mining industry. Uh, The kinetoscope he dismissed as a toy. You know, as late as 1891, he is saying it would turn out to be of, quote, predominantly sentimental worth. Uh, uh, But he's not alone in this. The Lumiere brothers, similarly meh about their cinematograph, so one person who saw the cinematograph not long after it was it was um, introduced was Georges Méliès, the magician who would go on to do such pioneering work in special effects, most famously in A Trip to the Moon, you know, where the rocket ends up landing in the man in the moon's eye. And he was extremely excited about the cinematograph, immediately saw its potential. You know, he was a magician and this device could do magic. So he asked the Lumières, if he could either borrow it or buy it. And the Lumiers said, don't bother, pal. It's a it's a trifle, this film thing. It's, you know, passing fancy. So there's all that, plus what you might argue was the full start of the peep show devices. You know, Edison envisioning row upon row of single-person telescopes so people can view images together, yes, but separately and at their own pace. And then, of course, we see the emergence of the Nickelodeon, particularly around 1907, 1908, they really get going, which is incidentally around the same time that Edison is uh, establishing his 
Edison Trust, which ensured that anyone making or distributing a movie in the US had to do so under license to him. So things are really begin to coalesce and get quite rapaciously commercial by now. So it's reckoned that by 1910, 26 million Americans are visiting Nickelodeons every week. And this is the invention of a specific category, the, the moviegoer, which has a knock-on effect on the form of the movies because of the way the distribution system was organised. If you wanted to screen a film, you paid according to its length. So naturally, films became longer. There was more profit to be made the longer the films were. And so we see the shift from the two-reeler to the five-reeler and the inauguration of the feature film we, we still have pretty much to this day. So, you know, this is a little bit of a roundabout way to answer your question, but if you work backwards, you see how complex and contingent many of those developments were. So it would have been way beyond a viewer in the very early days, you know, the late 1880s into the 90s, 1890s, and the advent of the kinetoscope and cinematograph to understand that what they were viewing, whether that be Le Prince's home movies or even something like Fred Ott's Sneeze which was the first movie to get a copyright which is is a movie of Fred Ott sneezing it would have been very very hard for them to foresee that these were the precursors to what we understand as a movie a 90 minute story often fictional shown on a big screen in a room with a bunch of other people so I guess again it, it goes to show quite how visionary Le Prince was that he was thinking in these terms when pretty much nobody else was Right. And, you know, obviously photography being the precursor, sort of the foundational element of film, you know, 24 images per second representing movement. But thinking about the way photography existed before cinema, it was not just simply this scientific interest and sort of, you know, an interest in in physiognomy, sometimes obviously uh well, wait, I won't go there. I was, just going, I was going to do a digression about phrenology, but let's not. Um. <laughs> I always like digressions about phrenology. <laughs> you know, feel free. Well, I mean, in this time when photography was refining, getting better, people were improving upon it. There was an interest, you know, there was a scientific interest in it because the first photographers weren't artists. They were chemists, you know, working to get the, the right sort of emulsion and get the capture the light and... Also, there was this interest in physics, just how things, the breaking down how things moved. That was not really, that wasn't something that you could do before photography, really, in a scientific, quote unquote, objective way. And of course, there's this racial interest because there was a lot of interest in uh, evolution and race and sort of breaking those things down, phrenology, like these mm -hmm. pseudosciences that were kind of popping up along with, you know, and, and being helped by things like photography. But photography was also being used as a memento mori a lot of the time. You know, the daguerreotype, yes. you know, the, the idea being that, you know, you would have an image of somebody and a daguerreotype is a photographic image printed on a reflective plate and that, you know, you see yourself and the image and it is even more so of a reminder that this, this image that has passed, you too will pass. Sure, yes. It's a vanitas, basically, isn't it? Yes. Yeah. yeah. And there, and also there, you know, there would be like, because of the long exposure times, very frequently, there would be posthumous portraits of, you know, children, of, of family members, and that you would be able to sort of remember them that way. And so 
so it, again, this is a long way of agreeing with you, I guess, that this is, it was hard, you know, Leprince Le seeing beyond it, you know, when, when Edison was like, this is a sentimental thing, or the Lumieres were like, this is just kind of worthless. They were thinking in terms of that, right? They were thinking in terms of like, it, what could possibly be the popular application for this thing when people primarily view photography and pictures in general as sort of like these discrete sort of representations of something that has gone by this, you know, like epiphenomenal ontological sort of object. Yeah. But, you know, to what extent did, you know, because Leprance's ideas, he was getting them from somewhere. So where was, where, you know, his forward thinking, was it coming from these pre-cinematic technologies or, you know, even those that like were not even photographic, like the magic lantern? Like, where was he drawing his inspiration and sort of like his, his vision for this invention? Well, there, there are a number of in, in, inspirations. So, um, again, in the magazine piece, I mentioned the incident when Le Prince is experimenting with compositing and he accidentally lets the glass place in his hands and the paper print beneath it slip from his grasp. And his, his wife, Lizzie, later recalls this creating a distinct impression of movement. But it's shortly after this, according to Fisher, that they throw a birthday party for one of the Le Prince kids at their house in Park Square in Leeds. And after tea and cake and Oh, I guess they didn't have pinatas in 19th century Yorkshire, but whatever, whatever they were doing, Louis takes out a magic lantern and gives the kids a show of Chinese fireworks. And then he turns to Lizzie and says, moving pictures will be the next invention. So there's pretty uh, sort of direct evidence that uh, magic lanterns were a direct influence on him. They may also have been an indirect influence. It's not entirely clear how much of Edward Muybridge's work Le Prince was aware of, but there is speculation that Le Prince was spurred on by news of Muybridge's advances uh, in Palo Alto in the field of instantaneous photography. And now in, in 1880, Muybridge devises something he calls the zoopraxiscope, wonderful term, which is a cousin of the Magic Lantern, where Muybridge's galloping horse pictures could be printed not on slides, but on the surface of a rotating disc. So it's possible that that uh, idea reached Le Prince as part of Muybridge's more general influence on him. Another inspiration, according again to to his wife Lizzie's correspondence, were the illusions that she and Louis had seen on their honeymoon in 1869. They went to a famous uh, place called the Théâtre Robert Houdin in Paris, which coincidentally would be taken over by Georges Méliès in precisely the year of Le Prince's great breakthrough in 1888. But anyway, Lizzie remembered, quote, the wonderful effects of transparent moving figures that the magician, who was called Jean-Eugène Robert Houdin, had created with reflections from mirrors, various mirrors focused to one point. And Louis had apparently been extremely impressed by this and went back over and over again. But there is evidence that the biggest influence on Le Prince's work on, the, on his motion picture machine was the panorama. So in 1885, when he was living with his family in New York, Louis Le Prince became the project manager for a new painted Civil War panorama by this French artist called Théophile Poilpeau. And it was called the Merrimack and Monitor Naval Battle, Newport News Point, 1861. And it was a huge sensation. And it's this 360 degree painting erected in a closed circle with two frigates sinking in the distance 
ironclad Union and Confederate warships firing at each other, desperate sailors swimming to shore. There were sections of scenery that could be moved about by wheels and pulleys, dramatic gas and electric lighting, wax figures to add depth. And so th- you know, this became so popular that in the summer months, huge fans were installed to stop queues of New Yorkers from being overcome by the heat. And Louis was nuts about it. And we talked about Louis de Guerre earlier. We should remember that he had started out as a panorama painter, which uh, led in part to his invention of photography. So it's during the run of the Merrimack and Monitor Panorama that Louis took his back room I mentioned earlier at the Institute for the Deaf. And this is where it gets interesting, I think. Paul Fisher reminds us that his original vision, Louis's original vision for moving images, was akin, whether influenced directly or not, to Muybridge's zoopraxiscope. But Louis's work with Poilpo had given him what we might conceive of as a grander ambition, animated photographs on a panoramic scale, a kind of a moving panorama in colour. A quote here from Fisher, not a small circle on the living room wall, but an enthralling entertainment, life-size figures thrown onto a huge screen in a darkened room. You know, which sounds very much like cinema, doesn't it? Yes. Yeah. The, yeah, no, it's, it is, uh, well, to quote David Lynch, you know, you can catch the big fish anywhere. Yeah. Big yeah. fish being the idea, big ideas. And, you know, you you say that in your review, you say that Fisher doesn't do much speculating about what might have happened if Le Prince had survived or yeah. if Edison hadn't, uh, the master of patents, I would say his wizard of patents, perhaps not the wizard of Menlo Park, uh, yeah. you know, for the fundamental underlying concept of motion pictures. But you do a bit of speculating and suggest that this scenario might have allowed film to enjoy a longer age of innocence. And we, we, we've sort of talked about this before uh, or alluded to what that, you know, the, the reality of what film has become. But what might have Leprance's vision of film? Because, again, we first of all, we wouldn't have Hollywood. And that's, you know, that's a huge <laughs> without that, that would be a huge, possibly better change. Maybe. So the counterfactuals of the early film industry. Well, you know, I mean, Fisher doesn't really speculate, which is which is no criticism. It's not really the remit of the book. But, you know, it's certainly the case, just to go back to the beginning, it's certainly the case that Edison prevailing over Le Prince's widow and son in establishing that, you know, he had the precedence in motion picture technology, unfair and ill-found as that, as that was, allowed him to join forces with Mutoscope, which was his main motion picture rival in the US by that time, run incidentally by WKL Dixon, who'd got really cheesed off with Edison and left to, to form a rival company. Anyway, they they joined forces, established the uh, MPPC or Edison Trust and a stranglehold on early American filmmaking, the extraordinary restraint on trade and creative freedom. And then, of course, this is my, my favourite part of the story, this bunch of renegade producers up sticks and headed west beyond the reach of Edison's lawyers to a part of the country with notoriously lax patent laws. And as it happened, year round sunshine, this one horse Southern Californian t- town called Hollywood. So, yeah, that's right. Uh, an unexpected and perhaps ironic consequence of Edison's power grab was the establishment of Hollywood. Now, by 1918, 10 years after the MPPC was set up, it was brought down, not only by the provisions of the Sherman Antitrust Act, but by the very popularity of movies themselves. So Stephen Bach puts it very well in his in his book, Final Cut, you know, about um, Heaven's Gate and the 
end of United Artists, which just happens to contain a very brilliant potted history of Hollywood too. So, you know, audiences by the tens of thousands craved flickers and couldn't have cared less if the flicker was blessed with patent legitimacy or not. So the movies grew too big for the Edison Trust to contain them and Hollywood was the beneficiary. So, and these outlaw producers started pumping out product to meet that demand. But then, of course, by the late 1920s, just after the coming of sound, Hollywood has established its own cartel or clothes shop, the studio system, with its compliant LAPD and its apologists in Washington. You know, as I as I say in the piece to misquote Michael Corleone, if there's one thing history has taught us is that clothes shop will follow clothes shop and that money will always prevail. But it is quite interesting to take a look at that 10 year interval between the disbanding of the Edison Trust in 1918 and the rise of the studio system in the late 1920s. So, you know, might that be more like this age of innocence that could have prevailed had Le Prince survived, or at least if his family has had proved his precedence in the technology? So, well, that's a very difficult question to answer, really, but it, it's perhaps illustrative to take a look at the career of Buster Keaton whose hot streak really falls in that period. Between 1923 and 28, he makes, among other movies, Our Hospitality, Sherlock Jr., Seven Chances, The General, and Steamboat Bill Jr. So essentially all of his masterpieces. And he's making them under the auspices of Buster Keaton Productions, which, despite the name, was actually 40% owned by his brother-in-law and Joe Schenk and Joe's brother Nick. So Keaton held no stock in the uh, company whatsoever, but he was free to make films the way he wanted to, uh, to do his amazing stunts. And, you know, he wasn't doing badly. He was on kind of $3,000 a week in the early 1920s. Now, we'll, we'll see how his indifference to the money side of things served him very badly later on, if you compare with the career of Charlie Chaplin, who was raking it in from the get-go. You know, he negotiated a, a deal with First National to get an advance of $125,000 per movie and half the net profits. But still, the point is... Buster has his independence. He's able to make the general and carry out stunts so dangerous he actually breaks his neck while the camera is rolling in Sherlock Jr. You know, he's an artist. Yes. <laughs> takes his wages, leaves the boring balance sheet stuff to the money man. But then in 1928, he's persuaded by Joe Schenk and against the advice of both Chaplin and Harold Lloyd to sign with MGM. You know, Harold Lloyd said, it's not your gang, you'll lose. And indeed, this becomes the decision that Buster Keaton will regret for the rest of his life. You know, in exchange for financial security and the kind of organizational efficiencies of a big, you know, big league studio, Keaton trades away the last of his independence. They won't let him do his own stunts. You know, uh, neither Louis B. Mayer nor the Wonder Boy Irving Thalberg have much of a sense of comedy. You know, within, within a few years, Keaton has collapsed into bankruptcy and alcoholism. He's been crushed by the system, you know, crushed by money. Is one way of looking at it anyway. But I, so I, I don't know. I mean, is, is that a good example of an age of innocence, that period of relative freedom Keaton enjoyed until 1928? Maybe, maybe not. Uh, you know, the example of Chaplin and his formidable financial canniness suggests that just as it would be 75 years later with Facebook, as soon as it was clear how much money could be made from movies, it was always going to be about that. You know, there was a time when people were saying the Internet heralded a new of age of human interconnectedness, which it did and it didn't. You know, so I don't know, maybe the idea of an age of innocence is a bit of a chimera. It's just it's just kind of fun to speculate on. Sure. Yeah, absolutely. And per perhaps as so much as a chimera is the idea of a 
genius inventor who only one person who ever came up with this one idea and perfected it as opposed yeah. to the reality when it's like convergent ideas and you know I mean, the auteur theory is such a huge part of how people understand the history of film. And yet, yeah. the the movies, how, how films are actually made, are such a great testament to the the role of collaboration, of, of the small contributions of different people contributing to a vision or, yes. you know. Or even say contributing to a vision, creating a vision. Well, you but you might you might you might you might say that collaborative principle necessitates something like the studio system. It necessitates those organizational efficiencies, and you know, and without the studio system, we wouldn't have got you know the Philadelphia story or or um, uh, or any number of other great move great um, movies made under that system uh, with you know Jack Warner and Louis B. Mayer holding the purse strings. Right, and especially if you think back on like the history of the musical, like how you know, like the MGM freed unit musicals, and how how elaborate those are, you know, were yeah. versus sort of how musicals look today, where it's kind of like, well, they kind of don't know where to put the camera. They like the use yeah. of space is kind of weird. It's just so true. It's not like oh, you should definitely make it like a Busby Berkeley thing, where it's like you know a very stylized '30s thing. But it's funny to me. Well, thinking about the history of Hollywood and technology, that and the role of Hollywood in determining these aesthetic principles, how kind of stuck they are yeah. in a way that it's stuck from in these very from things that were established largely in the 1930s, uh-huh. these conventions, and that we haven't. Like books, obviously books being much older or music being much a much older uh, art form, there still hasn't been that move forward. It's been very kind of like stagnant. And I think part of that has to do with the money question, but it also has to do with the centralization. And that's unfortunate. That's very unfortunate. You, so you'd say that's, that's true to this day? I mean, I think for popular stagnancy. film, yes. Yeah. I think that's well, stagnancy. And even in even in like independent films or sort of like, you know, slow cinema has become this uh, like for world cinema, for, for sort of like an alternative cinema, that's become the dominant mode of, mm. you know, aesthetic expression. And, and it's it's unfortunate because there's, you know, you put the camera anywhere. Yeah. <laughs> you know, you could put it anywhere. And yet. yeah. Yeah, that's a good point. Well, now that I've got you to agree with me, <laughs> I mean, you know, with maybe, 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 maybe this is slightly off the point, but um, you know, with the caveat that we have seen this shift to to serial form to over to at least in, I mean, I know you're really talking about um, the kind of mise en scène, but narratively, we might have, we might note a genuine shift along the lines we we discussed earlier towards open endedness, the serial form. You know, a lack of, you know, a disenchantment with with unity and discreteness, and that that yeah. change that change being led by by TV in the box set, yeah, or whatever comes after that, um, yeah. But for for better or worse, probably worse. But that's okay. <laughs> we'll deal with it when the future yeah. comes. Again, counterfactuals, the future. Leave these things. Don't worry about them too. Much. We won't. We but, won't deal um, with it. I'm sitting in the corner of the pub with my pipe and just moaning about moaning about it all. You know. <laughs> <laughs> yes, that's more or less all any of us can do right now. But that's yeah. fine. Um, yeah. <laughs> 
better than being at home with your pipe and a beer at home. <laughs> so, <laughs> uh, yeah. <laughs> All right. Well, thank you. I think this is excellent. And it was, uh, the story is truly kind of remarkable and, and begs many, uh, I don't know. I, it's, it's, it's excellent to hear as for anyone who's kind of interested in the history of film, the history. I hope so. What, and what so. film can be. So I actually wanted to go back to this question of of death. Um, I guess since this conversation is about to die. But the, the last line of your piece makes an evocative reference to Louis Le Prince as the man whose invention could reanimate the dead. And death is also present in Le Prince's very first film in which uh, his mother-in-law, who's just, you know, walking around their back garden, uh, was 10 days from dying. And that whole ghostly, uncanny necromantic aspect of film is is so invisible to us today that I'm not even sure we tend to look for it in narratives of the medium's beginnings. And so I'm interested in this question, not so much of film as a memento mori, but rather film as catching this ephemeral, ghostly, transitory thing that is life. I just found a great quote on this. So, so, you know, there's a lot of fairly unreliable reporting on how early audiences responded to film. You know, that you know the famous story about people running in terror from the Lumiere brothers' film of a Not steam true. steam trailer. <laughs> Not true, but yes. but there does seem to be a good reason to believe that early audiences did find, or some early on, early audiences did find film a bit spooky, otherworldly, eldritch. You know, and let's not forget that in 1895, Sigmund Freud publishes the interpretation of dreams. That's there in the whole equation. You know, there's a fashion for the irrational, for the magic, and you know, the kind of stuff you see in Christopher Nolan's The Prestige. There's just a super interesting instance of this in late 19th century Russia. So there's this guy called Charles Aumont, which was the stage name of a shady character called Charles Solomon, who was a French-Algerian entertainer working in Russia. And actually, his theatre was a front operation for a brothel, you know, no less a luminary than Stanislavski called for it to be shut down immediately. But in 1896, Omar gets himself a Lumiere Brothers cinematograph as a kind of diversion for his customers. And in June of that year, 1896, there was an Omar Cafe concert in Nizhny Novgorod at the All-Russian Industrial and Art Exhibition, which is where many more sophisticated Russians, holding their, no their nose against the stench of this guy, Charles Omar's reputation, got their first glimpse of cinema. And among that crowd was Maxim Gorky. And I'm going to quote what he wrote of this experience. Okay, Last night I was in the Kingdom of Shadows. If you only knew how strange it is to be there, it is a world without sound, without colour. Everything there, the earth, the trees, the people, the water and the air, is dipped in monotonous grey. Grey rays of the sun across the grey sky, grey eyes in grey faces, and the leaves of the tree are ashen grey. It is not life, but its shadow. It is not motion, but its soundless spectre. And then he goes on to say, It seems as though... It carries a warning, fraught with a vague but sinister meaning that makes your heart grow faint. You are forgetting where you are. Strange imaginings invade your mind and your consciousness begins to wane and grow dim. So this is a tantalising indication of the kind of impact it was having. You know, yes, film could reanimate the dead as it did in the case of Le Prince's mother-in-law, Sarah Whitley. But it does seem as if to some 
19th century imaginations, the very reproduction of life. You know, this is very ordinary footage that uh, Gorky was was uh, was watching in the in those kind of misty greys of early cinema. It did have this spectral quality, and it's very interesting to put that next to the cosy communal feeling engendered by cinema going that we were talking about earlier. That maybe the horror film is perhaps cinema's most natural expression. That it is inherently phantasmal and and supernatural. You know, I just put that out well. there. Oh, no, that's true. And I mean, I think in the 70s, and obviously, there was a huge sort of wave of psychoanalytic film theory, where it's like, you know, you're in the dark of the theater. Yeah, you're in in the womb. And there's this light on the screen. And that and even I mean, even though that's kind of laughable, it is it is true that, you know, you're going to a different physical space, you're sharing a room. And also, I forget, I think it was a Russian, early Russian film theorist who wrote about the magical flicker effect of cinema. Right. And that, you know, that's something that you lose. You lose that with digital projection. Yeah. With celluloid, you are getting these, like, the persistence of vision is working differently. And that, and the, the theorist argued that you were put into this special magical state by, by that flickering that you are subconsciously aware of the intermittence of the image and that, that the, yeah. co- the continuity is illusory. Yeah. Fascinating. Yes. And that, mm. or, and well, I don't know. Also, it's just nice. It's just nicer to watch things on 35. I'm sorry. I'm not, a huge, I'm not a huge like anti-digital person, but I, it is, it is always nice to see film on a print and I wish more people who were not film obsessives would push for that because it is just like, it's, it's just, it, your eyes feel different. You just feel different. You do. Well, join me in the corner of the pub with that. I'll, I'll, you know, I'll bring a spare pipe. <laughs> All right. Thank you. <laughs> You're welcome. You've been listening to the Harper's Podcast, produced by Violet Luca and Andrew Blevins. The music is cut and shoot by Febrifuge. The New York Times has called us America's most interesting magazine. Receive elegant, insightful, and wry writing from the best journalists, essayists, critics, novelists, and poets every month in our print magazine, and gain access to our digital archive, which stretches back to 1850. Visit harpers.org save to subscribe for only 1697.